0: My name is Steve Williams.
1: And I'm Clara
0: Williams. We would like to welcome you to our new podcast, Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections.
1: This podcast is about my journey, growing up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area, along with my cousin, Diane, my childhood friends, Kathy, Donald, Arva, Gwen, and Arva and Gwen's cousin, Ron, and our time as members of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. We'll each share stories which began with singing in the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ. Our incredible journey starts when we recorded an album that included the song, O oh Happy Day, which changed our lives. We've never shared these stories until now.
0: Over the years of our marriage, Claire has always wanted to tell the story of this life changing event. I'll be your host through these nine episodes as we hear from these voices from the choir.
1: We're going to pick up our conversation with Steve and Kathy Gaines as Kathy shares more about her time with the Northern California State Youth Choir and her transition into the Edwin Hawkins Singers.
0: Once that Northern California State Youth Choir came together over that nine months, how did the evolution of the music that Ed was presenting And I assume that Ed was responsible for how that music was presented. How was that different, Kathy, from the congregational churches? What did you notice about it?
2: The first part that I was extremely aware of is that, once again, we were learning the music rote. We were learning it by ear. But Ed's approach to that, both, I think, in concert with Betty Watson because we had two leaders. Most choirs have a director who is standing in front of them. Eventually, we evolved to not needing that. We didn't really need someone standing in front of us any longer. And she was very wise in realizing that because sometimes with the black church choirs, the antics of the director becomes the focus rather than the choir. And so when she was able to step away out of that role in performance or at churches where we sung, that freed her up to be more of a part of the choir, and it also took away the audience's focus on some person
0: Yeah, I think this is so true. In a way, it was distracting. Um, You really just focus on what was in front of the choir and not listening to the choir itself. It was the performance of the choir director. So the first time I saw Ed, I was really surprised because he
2: never really got up from the piano. Ed never made himself central. It was a long time before I think he was convinced to get up from the piano. And to actually move around on the stage along with the choir. So his approach in the early days was, I'm going to take the sopranos and I'm going to take you through your melody. He would play it out for you so that you heard each and every note on the piano. And then he might have you sing that 12, 14 times. And then he would move on to the next group. But he would constantly be saying as he's rehearsing the altos, Sopranos, don't forget where your note is, and he'd give them that note so that they could always hear it in reference to what they were hearing with the altos. Okay, so you were talking about how Ed was uh, teaching. His teaching style was new to me. It was a little bit new to me but certainly something that I had experienced because, as I said, as I was growing in music, one of the things that I realized was important for myself at my own home church was to play the notes so that I could hear them. But his was the first time I had gone to a broader choir and had somebody do the same thing, only do it very proficiently me it was kind of plucking it out but for him because of his expertise as a pianist he truly understood where all the parts were and he understood how to put those four-part harmonies together and make them sound the way that they did so he had nine months to craft us into a new way of approaching music.
0: You must have been pretty sharp by the time uh, you came out of it.
2: That really began to elevate us as musicians and as singers because it wasn't always the way our home churches approached our learning music. And so I would imagine for many people in that group who were musicians or who did go back to be in their home choir, they probably took back with them many of the attributes that they were learning from Ed into their home choirs. And I can just imagine that that probably became a spark within those home church communities as well because we began to see an incredible growth in the proficiency of the music. By the time we were teenagers, Choirs were pretty efficient. It was no longer people not knowing where their notes were. Everybody knew their notes. Choirs were able, and even groups were able to. Sometimes groups come together and everybody's not a soloist. And so you've still got those people who are in the background struggling. All of a sudden, you didn't have so many strugglers mm. any longer mm. in community churches. And I believe it's because they began to grow as those seeds of technical growth began to expand like fingers through the black community. The bar was raised. Exactly. Mm. The bar rose. Everybody had a responsibility to get on board. Mm. So what came out of there was the proficiencies of the Pointer Sisters, the proficiency of the Sly in the Family Stone, the proficiency of singers that could be prepared to do that crossover when it came time for it to happen. Prior to that, I don't think we were really prepared to do it. I talk about all the midnight musicals of our youth, but I think of those really as grassroots, Mm -hmm. born out of grassroots. But it was like something happened and the tide started to turn. And the way that the tide turned was to make it possible for this thing that we call crossover today.
0: This is going back to what you said about not having a conductor for the choir. So what what effect did that have over the group?
2: We had to listen to each other. We had to listen closely to each other. You had a choir, and many of these people in this choir were soloists, but they had to pull back to become singers. You had to listen to the person next to you you had to have the confidence and the faith in that other singer that if they said, wrong note, higher, you had to listen because any singer can move from singing. We all, especially soloists, we tend to want to fall into harmony. Whenever we hear music, we want to harmonize because nobody wants to sing alone, but if you're in a group, Harmony just seems to come natural. You just want to do it. But what we would have to do is we had to become one. Becoming one? How did they go about doing that? So those altos had to learn to breathe together. We had to learn to attack notes with the same fierceness. We had to learn to modulate in the same rhythm. Those were the technical things that we were learning without even understanding that we were learning those things. They weren't what was happening so much in our church choirs. We didn't bring that with us to the Northern California State Choir. We developed that in the Northern California State Choir.
0: So when you finally get to Detroit, did the group stand out? Was it clear that it was different?
2: Oh, yes. It stood out. Later, even Maddie Moss Clark said she was shocked. She had not made very many trips at that time to Northern California. And like everyone else in the Church of God and Christ, there was only a handful of pastors that people were familiar with and possibly their church choirs as a result. When she heard the Northern California Youth Choir, she stood up. For those of us that were looking out at where she was, when she stood up, we knew we were okay. And I remember talking about this on the bus ride back. And the big deal was, even Maddie Moss Clark liked us. (laughs) We were excited for that because she was someone for whom we really respected. And we had worked so hard mm-hmm. and realized that we had not only made a good showing for the state of California, someone who wasn't even a part of our group, who believed in excellence, whom we were trying to aspire to meet her standards, she thought we were good. I can't overstate how important that was to that group at the time. So when we came back home that first year, we absolutely wanted to stay together. Absolutely, we wanted to stay together. And we wanted to go again. At that point, it's kind of history. (laughs) So there were two conventions. You went to two? Yes. And at what
0: point in time was the album put together and that project came up?
2: The album came together after, I believe, the second, if I'm remembering this correctly. It came together after the second trip, because like I said, there was a Washington, D.C. trip, and then there was a Detroit trip. And I can't even recall today as to whether or not the two events were the same type of event. I'm really just not sure because, again, that first one I know was purely connected with the youth groups. The second one, I don't think quite so much. I think that was more of a convention that had been held for many, many years and had grown under Maddie Moss Clark. So the second time that we were going, we went had a great time, and came back. And at that point, it was like, well, do we really have a purpose? And we decided, well, yeah, yeah, we do. We have a purpose, and one of the purposes became we want to record an album together because I think we were moving towards that point where we were all feeling that we had accomplished the first goal And maybe there were no more goals thereafter. So I think everyone sensed that we were moving towards a point where we might disband and not be any longer. So the decision then became, well, let's do an album together. We had Ed's music. None of us knew very much about copyright or any of those things. We just knew we had our own music. And so we could record it if we wanted to. So we began selling our chicken dinners, selling pies, parents donating money, doing whatever we needed to do to basically make the money to make this album a reality.
0: I don't know if it was true because with the evolution of the state youth choir, especially after that first event, the reputation started to get out.
2: Absolutely.
0: Was there any sense of, yes, these weren't competitions, but a sense of a little jealousy because the Northern California, they hadn't been really a part of a lot of those things in the East Coast and the other districts had more of a core?
2: The things that we were doing were kind of known by it. the group We were getting ready to go to that second one, and I'm glad you brought that up because the album recording did come in between. And in between that time, Elder Johnson did take us to different events in California. I remember that. We definitely stood out as our own choir. We were still very much a part of our local choirs and our local church choirs. But I think more and more, we were becoming a part of the Northern California State Choir. Because in my high school years, I was not as much of an integral part of our church choir. I know that as I became a part of the Northern California Youth Choir. So there was a tug there, sort of a tug of war between am I going to sing? And it happened at a time when really we didn't have a very strong church choir. We had a number of church musical groups in my local church. We had scaled down from the everybody's in a big choir to the family groups that were coming together, and the two sisters that would sing or on this Sunday or whatever else, or I would do a solo on a Sunday. So even my father's church had morphed a little bit away from the necessity of the big church choir. And I think that because I believe we were on a bus again... <laughs> And I alluded to the fact that that was kind of how we got around. So that was a big part of it. Our parents were paying for portions of it. But Clara is correct. That money was also going to be used from those proceeds to do things like fund the specifically, I remember, transportation was one of the things that needed to be covered and I'm pretty certain that everybody had money of their own being given to them, of course, by their parents because they're leaving home. But on the road, we found out that that was at varying degrees. <laughs> it was, it, some people had more money than other people did, and so you learned to share if you had something. And we had been taught that anyway, so it wasn't as if it was out of the ordinary. It wasn't as if, oh, they don't have any money for this meal or whatever. It really kind of didn't matter. Your sense of community had been solidified enough that if one person ate, everybody ate.
0: The album happens, the recording of it, prior to... The second.
1: You yes. know, I see it Because I never went on yeah. the second one. She didn't mm-hmm. go on the second so one. I think you all did the first and the second all I remember is that you was the convention, where I think it was the youth convention, was supposed to be in Philadelphia somewhere yeah. in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. that year. I know in the yes. state of Pennsylvania Philadelphia, yes. Philadelphia and part of the record proceeds would help for that transportation. But we were kinda of in that last third wave new group mm-hmm. that joined in with the idea that we were going to do the album, the proceeds, I don't know all the details, but would help with the transportation to go to Philadelphia. But the process of us singing and we becoming Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. we actually the focus became not so much on going to Philadelphia exactly. after we made the album. Right. It was just, we enjoyed singing, and exactly. we were singing everywhere in the, the Bay Area and local places mm-hmm. and bussing here and there. So the fact that we didn't go to Philadelphia, it got superseded by when the choir took off.
2: Right.
1: I don't think everybody, I don't remember a conversation of, oh, are we going to go to Philadelphia?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. And I'm
2: pretty sure that you're right. I think that the two events that I went to, you did not go to. Because, again, they were still under the umbrella of the choir being part of the youth group of Northern California.
0: This is really interesting. So how did the group evolve? How did you notice? Because obviously being in high school and whatever, not necessarily worrying about the structure and the inner (laughs) workings of what happened, but Ed took it about to assemble voices for that. Because it didn't start off with the amount of voices that it ended up with. No. Right?
2: No. How did that happen? That first one, I have to tell you, I believe that Ed got whoever's children that Pastor Johnson convinced to come. That's what he got. He had to pull in from that a choir, and maybe that was part of why his approach was unique. Having never been at Ephesians, I don't know how his home church choir learned music. It could be that this was the way he taught all along, or it could be he took this ragtag group of singers and decided, okay... I'm going to have to pull them together musically. And this was the approach that he took. Because for the people who were there in the beginning, you either knew Ed or you knew Betty or you knew both. <laughs> so so for the most part, you were used to singing in your own home church choir. That was probably the most cohesive threads through the whole group. And so... At the point that we transitioned in, no. He didn't have what I would consider to be what people were thinking of as all the great singers in the community of Northern California. But I think because of what people began to hear, they began to morph into it. The foundation that was laid down because I have the joy to be able to say I was at the very first meeting. I can say it became bigger and more people. But again, there was no initially, I don't think or ever there was any resentment for that because these were people that we knew. We were happy to see the Rufan Lions come in. We were happy to see the Gills come in because now we're singing with the best of the best that we've always known were good anyway. And so now we know we can be good. These people actually came and helped to only build our confidence in who we were becoming. So that's a tribute to the foundations that they had laid in their own local churches that they would be regarded in that way where those of us who were already members would say, gee, well, if they're coming, we're really going to be something now, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Even though
0: they were sort of the aristocracy of the local gospel (laughs) groups, there weren't many albums there weren't many products or things that correct that represented them correct so the northern california state youth choir coming together to uh, make an album was a big thing
2: it was absolutely a big thing i'm trying to even think if there were any groups that had actually recorded
1: i, I actually yeah, um,
2: i think Betty's, no choirs yeah no
1: choirs the, Watson the Watsons, the Watsons had and Ola Andrews. That's
2: true, Ola, Ola Andrews. Ola Andrews. Yeah, and that's the church in San Jose that I talked about—the most kind of mm-hmm. Southern church the that we But the she no garden.
1: with just with her group, with her group, with her sisters because the, and, the Andrews and they were amazing. Yes. So you had and Betty Watt the Watsons, they were amazing too. Yes. A little different yes. gospel, Very different. but you hear a lot of it's. Tones and whatnot from Ola Andrews. Exactly. Because she was very
2: technical as well. Mm -hmm. So you do hear that. And that's a good observation, Claire, because he had been around both sets of families. And so I'm pretty sure he was picking up things from each side, and they were all musicians, so they were sharing together. I'm sure that they would find themselves at these different conventions, and they played together. So they had to know the same music. They had to read each other's cues as groups of people who are singers and musicians have to do. You have to learn to read each other. And so they were really already honing that very early on. So I probably do have to give more credence to the fact that that was probably another part of the technical expertise that was being observed in the development of the group as well.
0: So by the time it came to do this project, Mm -hmm. people were prepared. Yes. Very prepared.
2: We were very prepared. I remember the buzz of getting there and Most of us probably changed clothes when we got there (laughs) as opposed to wearing our street clothes to the church. And then when we got there, going back in the choir room or going to the ladies' room or whatever because something was getting ready to happen. You didn't think of it as I'm getting ready to do a performance and this is important, but you somehow knew this is different. We are getting ready to embark on something that's exciting.
0: So the rehearsals happened at a different church.
2: Yes, for a long time.
0: For a long time. But the recording took place at... Ephesians. And that's made it special in itself.
2: Yes, yes. Because many of us had never been in Ephesians choir loft. To be there from churches that were much, much smaller and to be in a choir loft looking out into the distance of a church. I remember noting where my parents and my sister sat the night of the recording. My parents left early. My sister was driving at the time, and so she was the one relegated to bring me home. And It took us a long time, I think much longer than we had ever anticipated. One, because we had never done it before. Two, we had never understood that sometimes an engineer has to do different things. He has to set different sounds. So having not taken that into account... We just thought we were, I thought we were going to sing, and then it would be over. We'd record everything, and that's it. And then realizing we were going to start and stop and start and stop, it was very different for me. And I remember my sister fell asleep on one of the pews, and for a short time, I thought she had left me because she was laying down, (laughs) And and feeling the sense of panic of how am I going to get home? But then I realized, oh, she's only laying down. So so she's still here. And even she comments that when she woke up, we were singing, Oh Happy Day. <laughs> she woke up during that person, and that was like her favorite song for us to hear. Even at that time, I think people had picked their favorite. So the fact that that became the song that resonated with people in some ways was not it was not that surprising because I think that song had been resonating all along with people.
0: Describe how the choir came together that evening. You talked about it earlier when we were talking about it in terms of the joy and the embracing of that common spirituality. How did that get translated into that night, what did people want it to ultimately be received as?
2: Well, I think in going back to recall that very first night, of course, Elder Johnson was there. We were all sitting sort of in the audience area of the church or in the pews, and he addressed us in the beginning and talked about we want to put the choir together to go to this event, and we want to make a positive showing for our church home here and our community. And at some point, he began a prayer. As with most things that we do, when you begin to pray and you begin to ask God for what you want out of something, the room changes. The space in the room becomes bigger than just the ceiling. All of a sudden, I think for me, I became very aware that this was not just for fun. This was something that was supposed to mean something. And once that thought came up in my mind in the middle of that prayer, I think my involvement became something a little bit more important than me. It was, again, something with purpose now. And I don't think I had had that when I left home. I knew I didn't have it when my father said I was going to join the choir. For certain, I didn't have it. But I think that opening prayer, and I cannot remember the things specifically that he said, but I do know that his prayer talked about what he wanted for each and every one of us, the blessing that he wanted this event and this effort to be in our lives. And that became very real because I think it set the bar for this is supposed to be something special. This isn't just that we're going to come together, we're all going to sing our part, and then we're all going to go home. It became special from the very beginning. And as each person came in, they came in wanting to be part of that specialness. So they had somehow, just in their own minds, come to the place of where we were in coming in. Mm -hmm. So much so that I often say you hear about a lot of divisions and derisiveness and meanness that can sometimes go in between individuals in large groups, especially you get a bunch of people at differing ages and who thinks that they're a leader and who thinks that somebody else should be a follower and who should be able to tell this person what to do and that person not what to do. But we didn't have a lot of that, and we certainly didn't have any of that that we took into the music. If you had any of those feelings, they stopped when the music began. It was like, truly, you don't take your other life into this life. There can be all sorts of things going on out there, but you don't bring it into this. Everybody had really matured.
0: Even those, the voices that really came in later, there was a maturity that existed because you were at the first gathering of the choir. So now it
2: was 18 months later, two years later. Mm -hmm. It's about two years later. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we had basically developed, we had matured, we had learned to count on each other in various different ways. We were also becoming a group outside of that so that when we would go to different churches and visit each other, we still managed to migrate to each other now. And that had not happened in years before. You kind of stay with your home group or whoever came. Now you didn't feel any sense of, oh, I'm going to go over there and sit next to Ruth Ann, or I'm going to go. You just did it because suddenly now you were a unit unto yourselves. And you didn't have to rely on being invited in as you may have had to at the midnight musicals of a 12 year old, where you thought you had to be invited to come sit. In. No, now you just went and sat next to them. So that was very different and very maturing for all of us because it gave us an opportunity to be among... I was never a part of my sister's friends, but suddenly in that choir, I became a part of my older sister's friends. And that was very new for me because she was so much older than I was, I wasn't even thinking that I should be a part of her running group. But now, and she sort of laughed, she said, oh, you're more a part of it now than I am. (laughs) (laughs) because now all of her friends knew me.
0: (laughs) So after the completion of the project, the Mm -hmm. album, what would you say was the overlying feeling? Was there a sense of satisfaction in terms of, or was there a sense that, okay, we've completed this, and now we have a task to do, which is to raise funds and get this thing out?
2: Yeah, we did, and we had, I think, a understanding that we wanted to continue. That was the overarching thing. We wanted to continue. As they say, we weren't ready to quit each other. We had found something within the group and within each other that we only wanted to continue it. That, I think, right there, as more and more people came in, there was also, with them coming in, a sense that it would continue because now there's more of you and you can do all these things. But of course, the secondary thing is the necessity for the album is because there is so many of you. So now the album is like our security. (laughs) Let's establish some sort of financial security so that we can move further and not be asking for $500 from your parents (laughs) to do this thing that you want to do. Because the other thing is that many of us who were the younger of the group were starting to move towards college age. So being able to continue and to have the money to do the things that a parent might give you when you're younger Those weren't happening any longer. We were getting older, so we were asking for gas money now. (laughs) Not just a ride.
0: (laughs) So what was it like when they finally pressed the project and you had an album?
2: Oh, oh my gosh. How many was it that we got each in the very beginning? I'm trying to remember. They gave us, I'm going to say for just lack of memory maybe eight, maybe ten and now you've got it and you know how special it is. So now you've got to go home and figure out who gets it.
0: So those eight copies or those ten copies were the complimentary
2: copies or yes. were you charged to no, sell No no okay. No no. These were your these personal. were your personal copies that you were I think it was believed that you were going to sell them. <laughs> But I don't think everybody necessarily sold theirs. I remember my parents just bought them outright and said, okay, these are going to go to family members. In fact, I remember my parents took over the job of dispersing. (laughs) So I didn't really get to do it myself. But we were expected to sell them in addition to that. So even though I think that was the purpose Probably half the families bought them, that first run, I'm pretty sure. Half the families bought them. In fact, the first time I ever heard the album on the radio, my first thought was, how could he have gotten a copy? (laughs) (laughs) This DJ, how did he get a copy? (laughs) Yes, yes, that's interesting. Now, in your home, you had a turntable? We had a turntable. We had a huge...
0: Console. A console, huh. yes, yes. And what were the kind of things that were played
2: oh, on wow. that turntable? Okay. Early on, and some of these things I still have from my childhood, the one thing that I woke up to almost every Sunday morning was a 78 of Aretha Franklin singing Precious Lord." And by the time I was in and out of the shower, I was hearing the flip side of her dad. I believe his name is C.L. Franklin. He had several very famous sermons that he recorded. But the one that my father loved the most was the eagle stirreth her nest. And I would hear that almost every single Sunday. That was the music that I grew up listening to. Sunday afternoon, it was the Clara Ward Singers, or it was the Dixie Hummingbirds, or some other such group. I knew the Dorseys as music writers before I even probably understood what music writers did. But I knew that name because that was a household name. Mahalia Jackson was another one. In the Upper Room was my mother's favorite Mahalia Jackson song. And my mother made me learn that song. (laughs) I kind of always thought, I don't want to sing that. It's old for me. You know, But my mother absolutely wanted me to learn that song. So I always said I learned in the upper room for my mother.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So then they started playing the Northern California State Youth Choir at
2: home. Yes. Suddenly now, on Sunday morning, I was waking up to hear my own choir. And my dad would say sometimes, you guys did a great job on that. I remember feeling very proud when my dad and my mom would say that. Because now I've really done something that they can truly appreciate. They would come to my high school concerts and whatever, and they'd say, oh, you guys sounded great. But it wasn't the same as when they put that album on the turntable and they'd look at me. Usually I was eating breakfast, they'd go, you guys did a great job on this, <laughs> you know? And I remembered at that time that maybe unlike other things, I had their 100% support for that group and what that group was going to do. I wasn't often allowed to leave Sunday service early to go anywhere, but if that group was singing, I was allowed to leave. This had not been a tradition before. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to have a tummy ache, and even when we lived upstairs, I didn't get to have a tummy ache in church and just walk out and go home. Mm -hmm. But for this, this was special. This
0: experience moves, it really permeates the community. So, whereas we're talking about the choir and the members of the choir being a part of this community and embracing the connection But once this came out, the parents were proud. Yeah. They shared it with their friends. They sent it out. Yes. It meant a lot. Yes. And this is way beyond anything else. As you say, how did the DJ get this? But
2: it became. It began to go. I remember after the first group that my parents bought, they continued for a month buying copies because they sent the copies to Louisiana. Because all of a sudden now, they're just really pleased, and they want the aunt and the uncle in St. Louis to have a copy. They want my brother in Chicago to have a copy of what his little sister had done. Elder Anderson, I can remember, he had taken over as bishop when my dad left. He wanted his family to have copy. My dad thought that that was very important. So I began to understand their sense of pride, not only of me, but of the whole choir in general and what we had accomplished. And I began to realize that as we began to move into performing outside of the church, that my parents started to get it. Traditionally, the music of the church belonged in the church. You didn't have choirs singing at the local parks the way you might have now on a Sunday. You didn't have them being invited and agreeing to come to inaugurations or anything outside of the actual church itself. And suddenly, here we are, And we're going to go sing at a park in San Francisco. And we're going to go here and there. And early on, my parents had questioned, well, what kind of place is this? And soon they began to realize, as I would come home and i talk about the people that we saw and who we met and how much those people loved our music and this, that, and the other, and I think my parents began to understand what we were truly doing was exactly what the gospel was supposed to do. We were spreading the news of Christ in places that may not have been traditional, but no less needed. Because I think their worldview was coming into focus also. And much of that world view was going to permeate our society in general at that time. We were getting ready to be in the Vietnam War. So we were sending our sons and our daughters far and wide and abroad. The norms of behavior were starting to change on campuses all over the country. Berkeley was a bloom in change during that period of time. And we had young Black students and musicians who were now starting to look at the possibility of a career outside. And many of those were taking place in the Bay Area because I became very much aware that the barrier Area became sort of a hotbed of music for people who were getting ready to go on and do significant things in the world of music. Mm-hmm. They were not just the people I went to church with or somebody that I saw who came in on the Midnight Musical. anywhere. These are now people who are getting ready to play with Santana Mm -hmm. or sing with Santana or getting ready to be in the recording session with the Doobies. And all of a sudden I realized it was all starting to take place back then, sort of underground, Mm -hmm. but it was building a force that was going to be reckoned with in a very few short years.
0: I think you're spot on with that because in looking at some of the billboards of some of these concerts and uh, who was there, Mm -hmm, um, and uh, Claire and I, we were looking at the one concert. Well, first of all, my first interaction with the choir, I was a freshman at UC Berkeley Mm -hmm. and it was the Berkeley Jazz
2: Festival.
0: And the thing that became very apparent was that, and of course, the choir's already transitioned, Mm -hmm. right? And we haven't talked about that, but that group still really was the Northern California State Youth Choir, but it was now the Edwin Hawkins Singers, was the only one of their type in the midst of each one of these musical gatherings.
2: Yes, it's true.
0: Which is amazing to me. Whereas traveling to Detroit or Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and going to a convocation or Uh, convention, it was all like-minded. Correct. And then all of a sudden, this group was chosen to be the representative in all these other spaces, I exactly. that was really such as Summer of Soul. Yes. Although on Summer of Soul, Sundays were the concerts, Yes. and correct. so there were a lot of gospel, I mean, obviously with the Staples right. and Mahalia and Jesse's Rainbow Choir and all those sort of things, but yes. the tour that this group was on...
2: And the thing that comes across to me about that in mentioning the Summer of Soul is the fact that he did reserve Sunday for those groups even though he was doing a jazz festival he did what many other venues would never have done he brought the church with him he brought everybody
0: with him well in fact the uniqueness of it and which is the concert took place over six Sundays yes Yes. So he had to, and when you look at the audience, yes, people were coming from church. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. Were, and there
0: were some That's that were just there, uh, there were some computers. <laughs> so that was an incredible blend Absolutely. of really true what the black community yes. was. Yes. And Latin community, yes. and, and just the homogenized Afro yes. community was
2: it's so unique. And nobody questioned it. That's right. I don't think anybody questioned it. That's right. These are all the people that belong together. You know, from Sly Stone to Manga Santa Maria to the Edwin Hawkins Singers to Ruffin to... You go on and on, but they all belonged there and nobody questioned it. Yes. And that there would be a place for gospel music on each one of those Sundays was unquestioned. Yes. Because it was so much a part of who we have always been. And so as black people in America, yes. it has always a part, has been a part of who we are. Yes. I think that in many ways, our crossing over at that point into those arenas only meant we were expanding the who we were into somewhere else that was beginning to recognize the who we
0: were. I love that, Kathy, because especially the metaphor of it starting way before you even knew yeah. it yes. was, to get to that point,
2: Exactly. to yeah. be that representative. Right. To have the ability to command that, because when you think about it, the music industry was pretty much built on the best of the best. That's why we hear talk about the Barry Gordys who honed the Supremes. And you hear of these studios that took people under their wing and they groomed them into what they were going to be. These people didn't leave home being this. Today, we can say much, much more that a Whitney Houston left to become who she was going to be. Exactly. Because she had already started being that where she was. Any of those people, when you think about that, John Legend, he was already who he was going to be. He sort of adopted just a new venue in the same way that we did. We adapted these parks. We adapted these nightclubs. To become, I don't think a one of us ever thought about the liquor that was being served in the nightclubs that we were in. Because one, we weren't drinking it. So we were there for a totally different reason. We were there to sing the music that we sing to actually influence the hearts and minds of these people. Yes. In the most rudimentary way, we weren't there to evangelize them necessarily, but we were there to bring them into a consciousness of gospel music and what it could be in another person's life. Yes. So that when they heard "Oh Happy Day," it resonated because it resonated in the joy that was where we came from. And years later, I can remember being at an event, and I'm a big quilter, and one of the international teachers was my teacher that year. And I was sitting there, and one of my friends who was with me, she said, oh, she was part of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. And I don't even know how it came up, and I usually I try and tell my friends, don't say that. Nobody remembers those groups. But, you know, that was way back in the day. And suddenly, somebody from the other end of this retreat classroom says, oh, my God, I've got that music on my phone. <laughs> so she immediately went to her phone to try and find the music. And we had this international instructor, as I said, very well-known we were delighted to be even just in her presence. And suddenly she's listening to the music and then the girl gives her earphones and she's listening to it. And the next thing I know, she's dancing around the room. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God. And she keeps saying, this is you. (laughs) She's dancing around the room. And I thought, even to this day, 25 years later, someone hears that music and it just wants to make them joy. It just wants to make them a part of that joy. Even though all those years back, having experienced it one way, I remember I experienced it in a totally different way in that classroom that day. It was like, oh, my God, this was not just a fluke. This woman is hearing this for the very first time, and, and, and she Kathy, still thinks. Fifty-two years later. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. It's it's amazing, and it's it's sometimes amazing to think that you were a part
1: of it. That was really wonderful hearing Kathy's story, and learning the origins of the Northern California State Youth Choir before I joined.
0: She really shared an awful lot of information and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Kathy, for uh, sharing that time with us. I'm really looking forward to all the other voices that we're going to be talking with from the choir. Stories that have been hidden for really a long time. So I hope you can stay with us on Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This episode was produced and edited by Steve and Clara Williams for Kite Flyer Productions. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to
2: podcasts.